We are going to energize the country. Stop Brexit. No more Mr. Nice Guy. Seamus and Notch is a great idea. Hello and welcome to the Debated Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Will. I'm joined by my co-host, Conrad. Hello. And in this episode, we are delighted to welcome to the podcast a comedian, uh, commentator and former candidate for the Brexit Party, Dominic Frisby. Welcome to the podcast. Hello. Um, So the first uh, question I'd like to ask you is, what do you think is funny about Brexit? For me, the, where, where I've derived the most uh, humour from Brexit, or what I find the most amusing about it, is uh, the ways in which people have tried to undermine it and to deny it, and, uh, and the way that they've reacted, and you see the use of straw man arguments like mad in Brexit, which is uh, arguing with something that somebody hasn't said, and uh, I mean, I just see straw man arguments getting used so often and, and so ridiculously that it's become quite comic. So, you know, extremes of emotion that it appears to have driven people to for things that are not actually based in reality is what I suppose that's where I derive the most humour from it. Now, obviously, your most sort of famous thing, I guess, is your song, 17 Million F-Offs, or more explicitly than that. Um, the, the, um, you originally released, um, and then you re-released to try and get in the charts for Brexit. How, how did you sort of come up with the idea for that song? What sort of inspired you to sort of write that? Well, um, I have a, uh, I'm trying to learn the ukulele. I'm not a very good musician, and I'm trying to learn the ukulele. And uh, I was having a ukulele lesson uh, with my teacher and um, uh, I sort of I've, I've always liked writing songs and rhymes and, and and sort of comedy raps and poems and things but I've never been much of a musician and my ukulele teacher's a terrific musician and um, we'd written instead of having ukulele lessons they'd sort of turned into songwriting workshops and we'd written a couple of songs and he always wrote them in such a way that I could play them on the ukulele and I said to him, I, look, I've got this idea for another song where um, uh, the, about all the uh, misinformation that was perpetrated in the lead up to Brexit, you know, Project Fear. They said this was going to happen and they said this was going to happen and they said this was going to happen. And with each and each thing that they said was going to happen was increasingly ridiculous. And then each time they said that this or that was going to happen the British just said F off. And so that was the sort of premise of the song. And, um, you know, obviously with uh, comedy songs, you have to sort of disguise it a little bit. If you just start going F off, F off, F off, it's not that funny. And so we had this idea of this sort of long choral, quite mournful opening, which would just be completely um, undercut by the word F off at the end of it. And then we were doing, we were working on the lists and, and, and each time saying F off and it actually got rather tiring. And so we found a way of doing it. And then my teacher said, oh, actually, this sounds rather like this old folk tune, which is um, called Uncle Tom Cobbley and All. It's an old Devon folk tune. And we found that it actually lent itself. So we basically used that old, old folk tune and, and put these new lyrics to it. When you say that um, we re-released the song, what, what we actually did is, is I actually wrote a whole new last verse. I deleted what was the last verse, so it's a new last verse, um, just after the 
the general election at the end of last year. And so it was sort of like, you know, 17 million F-offs, 2.0, rather than re-releasing the same song. About half of it was the same, half of it was different. Did you expect sort of the level of support for this song and all, like the popularity or was it, did it come as a bit of a surprise to you? Uh, it came as a total surprise. Um, the, what happened was is I, just, I just tried it out one night in a comedy club along with some of my other songs and some bloke came up to me in the audience and he just, he just went, oh, that, that song's really good. And remember, I released it in March uh, of last year, when, which was when, um, y- you know, when we were supposed to leave and didn't and the whole thing had been derailed. And so people who'd voted to leave were feeling extremely dejected and demoralized and, and cheated by the establishment and so on. And um, so anyway, uh, so I, I wrote it then and this guy came up and he said, oh, God, that was really good, that song, that's really good. And that was like on the Tuesday night. And I'd written it with my teacher like on the Monday. And then um, so I, I suddenly thought, actually, I'm onto something here. And um, uh, it, this was... The deadline was March the 31st, and this would have been, I forget the exact dates, but it would have been early March. And I thought, crikey, I've got to get this, get this in, you know, made into a video so that it can um, go up in time for March the 31st. And so we, we, record, we, we, we wrote it on the Monday. I performed it on the Tuesday. We went into the studio and recorded the song on the Wednesday. It was mixed by the Thursday when we recorded the video. We made the video on the fr- Thursday, and it was edited by the Friday. And we had it up. And it's just one of those things. It, it's, it, 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 when in viral videos, the, the way it works is you need a couple of quite influential pe- people to sort of share it. And luckily, you know, three or four quite influential people. One of them was Guido Forks and, you know, the Guido Forks website. And there were a couple of others. And so, you know, without that, it's really hard. But it just caught a nerve. It really just caught a nerve at the time. And, and so... Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I was surprised, but but I was also delighted. Do you think part of the um, attraction uh, with um, uh, using Brexit as a um, comedy tool for yourself is that comedy often works best when it is subversive, and something like Brexit, both to um, the quote-unquote establishment, uh, both in Parliament and in comedy, are quite opposed to that. Is that part of the reason that it attracted to you as a topic for humour? Um, I, I, I don't. I didn't think about it like that. But now you put it like that, I think you're absolutely right. You know, it was Brexit was the people telling the establishment where to go, and so it was inherently subversive. And, you know, there was this whole thing of giving people the vote and look what they do with it. And, um, you know, so that and, it, and again, the song was popular because it was, you know, it was anti-establishment, basically. And so, yeah, I hadn't looked at it like that, but I think it's right. Now, um, obviously, you've got quite strong sort of libertarian right wing views. Do you uh, think it's- let me let me stop you there. I, I, I make the very clear distinction between libertarian and right wing. They're not the same thing. Right, as economically right will be on a traditional spectrum. Yeah, but and socially left, and, and socially you left. know, right. When you start saying right wing, I think of uh, even bigger government, and and uh, that's certainly something I don't believe, and I believe in much less government. Right, well, but like it's 
Either way, libertarianism in the view is quite different from what you'd usually find in in like comedy. Um, often people in comedy are left wing economically and socially. So, um, do you find it difficult to be like a comedian with sort of different political views? Well, the what happened with Brexit is quite interesting. Well, there's a, there's about two or three things there. Is that comedy itself? bizarrely is the most and I'm just talking about live comedy a comedian starting out uh, you know on the circuit comedy is the most I, 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 if there's a more libertarian existence than that of the comedian I'd like to know what it is because you know it's, it's very individualistic if you look at the, the economics of comedy you know it's all the you have to start off doing open spot nights and new material nights and working for nothing and finding your feet and that can be three years and sometimes longer of just no work at all. Now that, you know, the idea of not being paid for your labor to, to, the, to the authoritarian left is horrific. So if you said, well, the, the reality of comedy is that, you, you know, you don't get paid for ages. And when you do get paid, the money's crap. And you've got to go to all these places at all ends of the country. And sometimes you don't get a hotel. And sometimes you find yourself sleeping rough. And you know, wandering the streets at three in the morning and all the things that go on on the live circuit, that is, would be abhorrent. If that was, you know, a coal worker or, a, or any kind of worker was treated like that, you know, the, the, the authoritarian left, the Owen Joneses of this world, would be going absolutely bananas. But the reality is, if you had things like, you know, the minimum wage in comedy, comedy would just die instantly. And nobody is being forced to do any of the things. It's entirely voluntary. And they're all doing it because, you know, there's this big carrot dangling in the sky of fame and fortune. And that's what everyone dreams of when they start out in comedy. And so, and any kind of government intervention in the, in the economics of this, there's all sorts of intervention at the, at the television level. And that's why what goes on on TV and what goes on on the live circuit are very different things. But anyway, and, you know, you survive... Every comedian is doing all these things. He's going to these gigs and he's doing this material and he's making people laugh. Every comedian is doing that. He's acting out of his own self-interest. He wants to get better. He wants to get, ultimately get, he wants to learn his craft. He wants to eventually be performing at better gigs in a better position on the bill for more money. He wants to get better and better. And so eventually he can get a, a, a TV show and, and fame and glory and all the other things and make his statement. All the things that motivate the comedian are self-interest, and he is totally reliant on himself. Um, and, you know, in a funny kind of way, in comedy, it actually helps to have something, um, in inverted commas, wrong with you. Like, it helps if you, because it gives you something individual. It gives you something to talk about. It gives you some, something to, to write about. So if you're just a sort of bland, ordinary, quite good-looking um, bloke with a sort of nondescript accent. In a funny kind of way, it's actually a disadvantage. It's, it, w when I say wrong, I mean something different about you. So that might be a really strong accent, or it might be, you know, a, an unusual physical characteristic, an unusual way of looking, an unusual experience with which you come into the world. And so you'll find every comedian, particularly early on in their career, if they're slightly posh, they'll exaggerate their poshness. Or if they've got some kind of disability, they'll mine it for every kind of laugh they can. If they're, you know, an unusual race or a, a, an unusual background or an unusual sexuality, whatever it is, they will mine it and exaggerate it. And so it's, it's, and, and so as a result, on the, on the live comedy circuit, you have all sorts of diversity. 
and it happens quite organically without the need for government promotion of diversity. And so it's a deeply, deeply libertarian existence. But on the other hand, most comedians, when they start commenting, commentating on, on the economy elsewhere, and by the way, you know, you go to a gig and every comedian wants to be the best comic on the gig. And there's an incredible camaraderie amongst comedians. We all get on very well. We all take care of each other. We all look after each other. If somebody's in trouble, you know, other comedians will step in and help them out. Somebody needs help with material. Everyone gives each other advice. So there's, at the same time as it being perhaps the most competitive profession there is, there's incredible camaraderie there. So as I say, it's a deeply libertarian existence. And yet, you know, there's, it, for some reason, if you suggest to comedians that, you know, maybe the NHS isn't the best way of providing the most affordable health care to the most people at the lowest possible price, or maybe, you know, education shouldn't be provided by the state because then it just leads to brainwashing and one, you know, you suggest anything remotely libertarian like that, they think you're some kind of abhorrent um, individual. And so there's this real con contradiction there in bet between the actual existence that they live and the demands they make on the economy elsewhere. Uh, I just wondered, as you've been um, describing the existence of a comedian, how did that as an experience differ from when you were standing as a candidate for the Brexit party? Because I, I would imagine people would think they're two quite um, separate existences, but I wonder... You know, did you see any similarities? Oh, listen, that, like? that whole Brexit party thing has been hugely exaggerated. And, and it, it's, uh, it, uh, you know, I can't talk about my experience there because I basically had no experience there. What happened was, is I applied to be an MEP um, and this was before that election. And I thought it would be a good I, I thought it'd be fun to be an MEP. Uh, well, I applied to be an MEP because I was deeply um, distrust. I was deeply uh, dissatisfied with what was going on at that time back in March, you know, the, the whole of um, Brexit being undermined by the establishment. So that was my initial motivation. And I could see, you know, with the Brexit party at that time, you felt that there was something new and fresh and vital and dynamic to it. And I was really excited and I want to be a part of that. I also thought, you know, it's only going to be six months or a year. It's only going to be temporary. And, you know, talking from my own point of view, being an MP in the European Parliament is a piece of piss because you know, you just turn up there, give a couple of speeches out every now and then, you know, have some of the gravy off the train. And, and I thought I'd, I'd get loads of material out of this. You know, there's loads of ways I can benefit. And, but they, the Brexit party said, look, we'd really like you. We'd think you'd, you'd be really good, but um, we're too early in our evolution. And we think, it, you know, we, we, we think having you as a comedian on our books would just be a step too far at this stage for where we are. So I said, OK. And, um, well, I, I, you know, I was a bit disappointed, but I had to accept what they decided. And then the election came along and I think they made the choices in like July, July or August, it would have been. And I was just going up to Edinburgh doing the Edinburgh Festival. And they said, did, did I want to stand? And the guy in the next um, borough along from me is a guy called James Brokenshire. And you will never find a bigger sort of continuity establishment Tory. And he was the guy that basically he's a solicitor and he's the guy who shot Roger Scruton without looking at the evidence. So it's you know, a deeply hypocritical thing that a solicitor would, would shot somebody for that New Statesman article without actually looking to see what Roger Scruton actually said rather than what he was reported to having said. So, you know, as there was a sort of slightly grudging personal thing against that guy. So I said, yeah, I'll do it. And, and, and I was going to be the candidate. And as I say, I was doing Edinburgh at the time. And in Edinburgh, you do anything you possibly can to get publicity. And I thought, oh, if I say I'm standing for the Brexit party, another benefit of that will be I'll get a load of publicity out of it. So I did it. And, and it was announced 
and you know I was pretty much excommunicated for the, from the comedy circuit from doing it my agent uh, uh, just stopped talking to me and eventually we had to part company um, people were writing UKIP C-U-N-T all over my posters in Edinburgh and as some of the other comics were saying to me that's only half right <laughs> and um, you know so it was just horrible the, the abuse uh, for doing something that I think was you know, reasonably principled trying to stand for democracy and all that so I thought, oh, I can do without this. And then my daughter's having a, a few problems at school and there's a few problems with her mother and, and one thing and the other. Her mum's very ill. And so basically I have to bring up the elder two kids. And I thought, I can't fight a general election. And it looked like there was going to be a general election in the autumn. I can't fight a general election, look after my kids, deal with all the abuse, try and earn a regular living in what I do anyway. I just thought it's just too much on my plate. So I stood down about a week after I'd stood up. So... Um, so I wouldn't, I can't tell you anything about, you know, what it's like to be a Brexit party candidate because it really didn't get that far. But I will say this, in that short time that it was announced, the amount of abuse I got, you know, was um, incredible. And I know MPs and potential MPs from all, um, from all political uh, parties take so much shit. And they, because they take so much shit, it reduces the amount of people that are prepared to do it. And as a result, probably... You, you, you breed a certain kind of person becomes an MP who maybe um, is got thick you've got to be pretty thick skinned to be an MP put it that way now we've just had the budget today as of recording this um, where sort of they've set out the response directly to the coronavirus outbreak that we're going through and also a more long term budget and um, what are your views on the measures announced today well I haven't actually looked at them yet um, but I can tell you what they are without even having to look <laughs> because it's just so obvious what's going to happen. Now, you know, I, I've talked a lot about comedy, but my day, my other job, if you like, is uh, I'm a financial writer and I've just written a new book called Daylight Robbery, all about the past, present and future of taxation. My particular uh, area of expertise is money systems. So I've written extensively about gold, about fiat money, about Bitcoin and things like that. And so um, and I've become convinced that the way once you start looking at the world through the prism of taxation, um, a lot of why things are as they are become very clear and why events in history happened as they did and why society is, 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 is the way that it is now and how the future is going to be. So I've sort of got this big grand theory that, that tax is the way you design a society. And the tax system in the UK is just, it's designed for an A, it's, it's you know, we're living in a digital economy now, uh, you know, the majority of, of, of wealth and investment and everything is digital, and that tax system is designed around a physical economy that doesn't exist anymore, or, and, and um, you know, about the physical movement of goods and services and physical labour in a physical world, taxing income. And there's just so many inequities and injustices and inconsistencies and, and uh, in our tax system. It just needs wholesale reform. Um, do you know uh, our, our tax code uh, over 10 million words in length? Now, to put that number 10 million words in some kind of perspective, the longest novel ever written, Marcel Proust's um, Recherche de la tom, du temps perdu, is, is, is about 1 million 1.3 million words. So it's maybe seven or eight times the length of the longest novel ever, ever written. It's 14 times the length of the Bible. It's more words than most people will ever read in their entire lifetime. And that is our tax code. I promise you there is not one individual in the whole world who has read the, our tax code in its entirety. And yet that is, the, that is basically how 
you know, the whole national economy functions. And they're right there in the design, bloated and full of inconsistencies and loopholes that the few have the resources to exploit and the many don't. And, you know, we tax income. 50% of government revenue comes from taxing income. And then we don't tax wealth or land or anything like that in the same way. And people wonder why it's so hard for the young to get on. It's because they're taxed to death. You know, it's really, you know, we, we, it's just, it's so, creates so much inequality is inherently in the design of our tax code. And it needs someone, A, who understands all of that, and B, is almost ideologically um, driven to reform it. And I can tell you that this new chancellor, who is, you know, head boy at a public school, PPE at Oxford, Goldman Sachs, straight into a job as chancellor, you know, he is not that ideological reformer. He's got where he is by being a highly competent and, and, and bright yes man. Um, he, he, he's got where he is by not rocking the boat, but by making sure the boat goes forward very, very smoothly. And so I can tell you that all that will have happened is some tinkering around the edges, some promises for spending on infrastructure, uh, probably all sorts of bailout promises that involve money printing, although that's more the Bank of England to, you know, to, 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 to write the system with coronavirus. But basically, all that we're going to see, economic intervention by the government. And we need that, that like we need a fist in the face. Uh, we're coming towards the end of the podcast. It's been um, great to have you on, Dominic. Uh, and I'd just like to ask one final question. If there was any piece of um, comedy advice you could give to yourself 10 years ago, what piece of advice would you give to yourself? I would uh, uh, trust yourself, do what you think is funny, focus on that, and if you want to be a comedian, then commit to it and don't do anything else. And focus just on what you find uh, being funny. If you were a, a football player or a boxer, you know, be like a football player or a boxer who only does boxing or plays football. They have no other complications in their life. Um, you know, a lot of comedians, uh, you know, do the equivalent of getting a learning a trade or getting a second job. I did it by becoming a financial writer. But if you really want to get right to the top, have thick skin and do nothing else. Well, I think that's a, a great piece of advice. Thank you once again for being on the podcast. My pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Can I plug my book? Yeah, of course. Um, thanks very much for having me. And if anyone, I, I'm on Twitter at Dominic Frisbee, and that's usually the first place to find any uh, information about anything I'm doing. But if you want to read my book, Daylight Robbery, uh, it's the best book I've ever written. I think uh, it will change the view you view the world, and I'm, I'm extremely proud of it. It's had amazing reviews, and uh, you can buy it on Amazon, Daylight Robbery. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Don't forget that you can subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, or YouTube. You can follow us at Debated Podcast on Twitter, like us, Debated Podcast on Facebook. And if you want to email us, either about appearing or making a comment or reaction to the episode you've heard or any other episodes, then email us, thedebatedpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. I hope you listen to the next one. <laughs>